the further away your ideology is from reality, the more it, it conflicts with reality, the more it is going to fail. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Today, we will start out with a recommendation. If you haven't heard of New Discourses, it is the website set up by James Lindsay. If you haven't heard of James Lindsay, he's the guy along with Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian who wrote the Grievance Studies papers in, uh, I think they started writing them in 2017 and, uh, and wrote them into 2018 and caused quite a controversy because what they basically did was write a bunch of hoax papers. Well, I don't know if they started out writing hoax papers, but then just um, they wrote essentially fake papers in all of these like feminist and women's studies and you know race studies journals where they'd start with a ridiculous conclusion and then just write a ridiculous paper to support that conclusion. And long academic articles and got many of them published in these journals and then eventually it came out um you know i think their cover was blown before they wanted to or something but you know it came out that these were essentially fraudulent articles written as a you know just to show how low the quality is for these kinds of journals and how they're really not academic disciplines at all and that's what kind of um catapulted lindsay along with his you know his co-authors into the into the news sphere and since then, he and Helen wrote a book called Cynical Theories, which we will eventually talk about. That one just came out late last year. And so on New Discourses, on Christmas Day, Lindsay published an article called Psychopathy and the Origins of Totalitarianism. We'll include a link to it in the description. I recommend all of our viewers and listeners check it out if they haven't already because in my opinion it's probably it's the most important and like the the best article i've read in years and it's one of the only articles written on a topic approaching or you know utilizing or expanding on the book political ponderology by andrew lobachevsky which of course we talk about regularly and which is one of my favorite books in this article, he focuses on a few concepts in ponderology, but puts them in his own words and basically develops these ideas on his own. And, uh, well, two of those concepts are para paramorality and paralogic, which we'll get into a bit, and of course psychopathy. And the one that ties them all together is this idea that he... He, bro he, bro he borrows the term from Joseph Pieper's 1970 essay, Abusive Language, Abusive Power, and the word is pseudo-reality. So it's about ideological pseudo-realities. And he ties these ideas together, pseudo-realities, paralogic, paramoralisms, paramorality, um, and with psychopathy as well, to deliver his take on basically what's going on in the world and what, not just what's going on now, but that but what has gone on for a large part of the 20th century with the development, and before then, of the development of these ideological pseudo-realities. Some examples of them are like communism, um, like Karl Marx. But in this case, what he's the expert on is the 
newest, one of the newest pseudo-realities, which is critical social justice theory. So you can find that in, like examples of that in the, the types of journals that I mentioned and in diversity, equity, and inclusion boards, you know, all over the country, all over their Western world. And critical race theory, there's all of those all of those sorts of social justice social justice oriented ideas and really practices center around this ideology. And the reason he calls it a pseudo pseudo reality is that because is because it is basically there's nothing <clears throat> there's nothing in it that matches up with objective reality. It's a it's a totally it's a fictional world that just manages to resemble reality enough that it's believable so that a lot of people can believe in it. <clears throat> and one of the reasons they do this, or one of the ways in which they do this, is by using a a plausible language that people can then like identify with, understand to some degree, and then see then use that language and that framework to to project that reality onto the world around them. So the way that works with racism, for instance, is that everyone knows racism exists. And for most people, the vast majority of people, um, at least in our cultures, see that as a problem, you know, see racism as a problem, because that's that's been the trajectory for years and years and years, is to um, increasingly uh, increasingly accept the, that it is a problem, whereas you know, in previous years, even like 60 years ago um, or less, you'd, you'd find more people more willing to express openly racist views and to have an openly like racist uh, to have openly and explicitly racist policies so when we acknowledge that there is such a thing as racism and that it is a problem pretty much can, everyone can do that but what critical social justice theory does is redefine what racism is to the point where racism doesn't mean what it used to mean so there's this inversion of concepts, there's this, this inversion of language that goes on that is very Orwellian. To say one thing and mean another thing. Because when a social justice uh, theorist or practitioner talks about racism, they're not talking about what ordinary th people think of as racism. They're talking about something like systemic racism. Um, and there's, in a previous show we mentioned a video by, I think uh, it was PSA Sitch, who's a, a funny very creative YouTuber, and he did a couple videos, must must be like a couple years ago now, on what what racism actually is, according to these people. Um, and if I can find those, I'll include those in a, in a link too. But if you search if you search PSA Sitch and uh, and racism, you should be able to find them on YouTube, because it's not what you think it is. Like when they're talking about racism, it's it's not what you actually think it is. It's actually a form of racism. Um, Lindsay calls it neo-racism um, because it is it's one of the most racist things you can see. Is you are seeing yourself and everything and everyone in terms of their skin color. So that's why you'll see people on you'll see this. It's become a well, um, you know, I'd call it a fad, a trend to to explicitly and like endlessly signal your race whether positively or negatively so you're either um, you know part of the problem because of your skin color or um, not part of the problem because your skin color and it's 
you know, you'll find it in Twitter profiles or in, in tweets where people are explicit about what race they are. And while, the, while Lindsay doesn't talk about it in his article, <clears throat> I don't think, in some of his, in his other writings and, and podcasts and things of that sort, he talks about how, uh, or he defends colorblindness. You know, this idea that what we sh should actually be doing in like a liberal society is to foster these notions of colorblindness, that, that race, your race should not come into play in any way. And that's, that's the, that was one of the, the roots of like the civil rights movement is this notion of colorblindness, these ideals of it. But that's totally flipped around where now colorblindness is itself racist because you can't escape being a racist if you're part of an oppressor class or an oppressor race. And so these ideas are being taught in schools, being taught to children. And essentially, most likely and almost certainly, creating more racism and creating well, things on top of that in addition to racism, um, like even inspiring, well, it would, to me, if, if, if I were to imagine I'm teaching these things to, to children, to young children who don't have a fully developed frontal lobe, you know, frontal lobes in their brain, uh, who can't think for themselves, I'd see two, one of two things happening. I think a lot of the sensitive kids would be racked by guilt for something that they, for a, a belief that they don't actually have or a, or a, a privilege that they don't actually have. Um, certainly beliefs that they don't have um, because you know if if anyone has grown up in a multiracial multiracial environment they know that kids really don't care about race and oftentimes are like literally colorblind they won't even realize that their friends who are of different races are different in any way of them until it's pointed out to them um, i've found that to be common not only in my own experience but with people i know who have um you know, who've interacted with kids like that. So on the one hand, you get, you, you instill this, this, this sense of undeserved um, guilt and blame onto some students. And then on others, if you're, if you're constantly teaching white kids that, that, um, that, that they live in a culture of white supremacy, for instance, I'm sure there are some kids that'll be like, oh, I'm white. That must be, I'm, that must mean I'm at the top and would actually reinforce that stereotype for them to the point where they're, they're going to grow up to be an asshole because, because uh, they've been told their whole life that, that, they, have privilege. that they have privilege and that they're, they're important. And, and so they're actually, I, you know, this is just a guess on my part. I don't know if anyone's actually tracked this kind of thing, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's one of the effects is to actually reinforce and create a degree of... of that like supremacist attitude that wouldn't have otherwise existed if they had just been raised in a normal environment without this ideological brainwashing. But anyways, that's uh, getting a bit, uh, a bit, well, not off topic, but a bit away from the article that uh, Lindsay wrote. Maybe I'll just, I'll just say read it because especially if you, um, if you've read Ponderology before and you want to see a you know someone who understands it and who can apply it to the present day and and real life examples of what's going on 
Well, Harrison, uh, before you do that, just a quick note uh, for those who may be new to our channel. The book that Harrison was mentioning is Political Panorology by Andrew Lobachowski. And in a nutshell, it describes the psychological processes by which a society becomes influenced or ponderized by a, uh, a network of, or even a, a small number of pathological individuals, and discusses the weaknesses that many normal people may have in, in dealing with the influence of uh, psychopathic thinking and not knowing, uh, being vulnerable to uh, what psychopathic thinking um, or paramoralisms or uh, ideas that are just based on um, twisted ideas and ideology, what, what effects uh, these ideas can have and what influence uh, they can have at a, a macro social level. So just wanted to give a quick recap on that. And um, of course, it's, uh, I'll just add that <clears throat> this article is um, a really wonderful kind of uh, update in a way and, and a revivication of, of ponderology uh, and, a, and a kind of affirmation of, of its value to us, especially as we, especially as we use it to reevaluate what, what we're seeing uh, in terms of ponderology. So we can, uh, well, how do we want to take this? We can take it uh, as just like a further uh, de development or investigation of like, uh, or expansion of uh, James's article, or we can try and look at it uh, or use it to look at what's going on right now. Because you had mentioned, you know, all the different critical justice, uh, social justice theory, uh, invasion of education and everything else uh, and what might it look like for because this isn't just an American phenomenon either this is this is global I mean you have like uh, Justin Trudeau bowing to the to the feet of you know bowing before the social justice warriors and you know same with uh, some of the other Europe or some of the European uh, prime ministers and you know electorate um, or electors um, so it's, it's a lot more complex now than, than just to examine one particular nation and, and see what it would look like to involve or evolve in that kind of a way and how to, I guess, see what things might look like moving forward on this wider scale. Well, <clears throat> maybe to start with, I should say something about psychopathy. We, last week we interviewed Dr. George Simon, who wrote in sheep's clothes or in sheep's clothing about dealing with manipulative people and the types of types of manipulation tactics that they use and like he mentioned when he first wrote the book he didn't get very good reception for it you know um, among the ac uh, the academic world or even in, in conferences but over the years he's gotten a lot better reception like people are a bit more aware of it I think nowadays people are um, you know, it's it's in the zeitgeist enough that people are more receptive to this idea, but still, people have a hard time imagining the level of malevolence that is in that comes from 
a psychopath. And I'll, as we move on, I'll explain, you know, why this is, why this is so important. Um, most people are familiar with like criminals, like, and with serial killers. And there's a, a ton of, there's an entire, you know, book market for books on serial killers and TV shows and movies. Um, you know, recently you've got shows like, well, David Fincher has always, um, for, for years done stuff on serial killers like, uh, um, Zodiac, Zodiac, seven. yeah, seven and the mind hunter or mind hunters, which one was it? hunter or hunters, the, the Netflix show. Mm-hmm. And so people are kind of aware of that. And one of our, one of our most popular shows that we did on this channel was on, um, Israel keys, the famous Alaskan serial killer and most serial killers are psychopaths so that's that might be the extent that most people who don't like it look into this kind of thing have about the the phenomenon but that's not the extent of psychopathy um, only a tiny percent of psychopaths are serial killers so for whatever reason some psychopaths become serial killers but you can learn a lot by by looking at serial killers and then if you take away the serial killing out of them that that mentality that they have, that worldview, that mindset, um, that total lack of conscience, and total disregard for the the rights and well-being of other people, that extends to a large chunk of the population. By large, I mean you know the estimates are around one percent of the population is psychopath is a psychopath, and nowadays there's more research on like what's called the the dark triad. I think we did a show on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and was narcissism, narcissism the third one? But um, so depending on how you measure psychopathy, because there are various different like psychometric instruments to, to, uh, to determine if someone's a psychopath. In, in the clinical sense, if you use the hair checklist, I think the cutoff is like 30 out of 40 that um, that person is deemed a psychopath. And it seems to be a pretty accurate test for like prison populations and things like that. But when you're measuring psychopathy in the general population among non-convicted criminals, you can still pick up on psychopathic traits and using using the more kind of like uh, toned down versions, I guess you could call them, of, of these sorts of tests. I think I've read in some articles, some, some uh, researchers hypothesize that maybe f- even up to four or 5% of the, at least the American population, can be deemed psychopathic to some degree or another. So there, you know, the 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 boundaries are kind of a bit blurry, what the actual percentage is. But like Lobachevsky, he he estimated 0.6 percent of the Polish population back in the you know 60s and 70s when he was working in Poland. So you could you could guess that it's going to be around there. It's going to be one percent, give or take. It could be more, it could be less. Um, but when you factor in other types of personality disorders and the the kind of um, the effects of various things on the 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 brain and the minds and the values of non psychopaths you get a lot of people that approach that can maybe approach that level or the and what you know, as Lindsay calls it become like functional psychopaths they may not actually be psychopaths but they've adopted the the worldview to such an extent the beliefs to such an extent that they can act in certain psychopathic ways. And so I'd, as an example of that, I'd cite the show we did on the book Ordinary Men, 
And of course, there's the Milgram experiments and things like that that show if you put people in certain situations, they they can do horrendous things that that um, appear for all intents and purposes well, and, and probably can be classified to some degree as psychopathic, even if they themselves are not essentially a psychopath. Because a psychopath is a it's pretty much a personality structure. The the research suggests that people kids essentially are born that way. There are structural differences in the way their brains are formed that that lead to the development of what we call psychopathy. So you'll find children, very young children, who display what they call callous and unemotional traits. So even from a very young age, you'll find that psychopaths don't have a conscience. They are not moved by the types of emotions that the vast majority of people are moved by. And that can come across... Well, it might come across in a in a young child as um, like a total self-centeredness, which is you know not not necessarily abnormal when you phrase it that way for a young child, but to, total self-centeredness to the exclusion of like considering anyone else. So kids who won't share, who use violence to to get their way, who um, torture animals, who who show no signs of like remorse or guilt over harming other people. And as psychopaths grow up, they keep that mentality. And not only do they keep that mentality, but they learn to fake being a normal human. And that's the thing that gets a lot of people, is that psychopaths know are con men. They know how to manipulate other people so that other people don't realize what they're like on the inside. I think it's Robert Hare, you know, the one of the preeminent researchers on psychopathy who tells a story... I think he was even consulting with um, an actress, blonde 90s actress, I can't remember. It wasn't Sharon Stone, I don't think, but someone else who was who was filming a movie um, where she played essentially a psychopathic character and and one of the one of the scenes, I guess, was her witnessing a car crash and looking at the faces of the people around her who were like horrified and shocked and crying and um, and then she went home in her mirror and and learned to to mimic their facial expressions so that she could then you know fake it fake it pretend you know be able to blend in with the crowd basically and pretend to be horrified by something that didn't affect her at all so psychopaths do not have the same emotional makeup that humans have they totally lack any sense of value for other people they 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 basically use other people as strictly like objects for their own purposes so they will essentially sacrifice other people manipulate them use them um, abuse them just to get what they want and manipulate them whether it's in the workplace um, Hare wrote a book with Paul Babiak called snakes and suits about corporate psychopaths who just steamroll anyone in their path um, steal other people's work, blame other people, for, blame people for problems, create problems for other people, create um, um, like make things up about other people to get them fired, to then move into their position, and basically just you know slash people down as they work their way up the corporate ladder with no regard for for those other people. Um, these are the kind of people that would you know that steal money from grandmas and uh, and um, any kind, any type of con or manipulation, it's like psychopaths are excellent at that because they have no regard for the other people for whom to, to whom they, they are doing these types of things. So 
that's the kind of just a very brief and incomplete overview of what a psychopath is actually like. The reason that Lindsay includes psychopathy in the title of this article and in the, the content of it is because psychopathy, if even if people, even if it's not immediately apparent, psychopathy is a probably the most important driver of what we see as these destructive ideological movements. Because one of the things about psychopaths is that this probably isn't the best way to, to phrase it. Um, there's probably a better word to use, but they can't cope with reality. Now, when, when I say that, I don't mean that they can't cope like some people can't cope and it's just, it's just too much for them. It's like this existential like grief and anguish about the, the nature of reality. No, they can't cope with reality in the sense that reality is designed, you know, most societies are designed for normal people. It's normal people interacting and doing normal things. Well, maybe it's better to say they don't, psychopaths don't fit in a normal reality. They are kind of, um, they're kind of like, they're almost like aliens you know, in this in this alien world, we're surrounded by all these weird people. Where they're this tiny minority who see the world completely differently, and they are forced to then pretend to to be part of the the kind of mainstream reality. Because when people realize what a psychopath's like, they want nothing to do with them, and often, well, that's why, like something like, in I can't remember. I think it's something like eighty percent of of criminals in like um, that are that have gone away, you know, got put away for serious crimes. Something like eighty percent of of those people in prison are psychopaths. That's where societies tend to put psychopaths. Is they they tend to segregate them <coughs> in some way, whether in prison or well, yeah, mostly in prison. <coughs> and I'm sure in other societies it was other means of separating them from the the social body. Like there are stories of um, like northern, I think an Inuit group who have stories of this particular type of person. And when no one's looking, they'll push them off on, you know, on an iceberg and just, you know, let them float away because they cause so much damage to the, to the tribe or to the, to whatever social unit they, they have. And so naturally psychopaths, the, they have their own type of, of resentment because they live in a world where they can't. Um, they can't be who they want to be necessarily, openly, for sure. And they can't get what they want, and they feel like they deserve they deserve everything handed to them. Um, they don't necessarily feel like they should have to work to to gain anything. They should just other people should just give it to them because they are such great people. And um, that's why, like a corporate psychopath, will use another another person's work appropriate it and then create a situation to then you know get that person fired or make them look bad and take all the credit it's because they don't actually want to do anything they, they it's much easier for them to just use someone else's work or steal it to to get what they want this gets back you know it's the the, the idea of the, the criminal mind that we mentioned in george simon's uh interview and that we've talked about before the criminal mind is totally entitled um that they does they think that they deserve Whatever they have, just because, um, just because, just out of their sense of self entitlement, they don't have to work for anything. So, a great example is the "Cash Me Outside" girl, right? And, and several people on a, on Doctor Phil, where you see these totally entitled kids who, mm -hmm. who um, will 
who think it's okay just to just to steal someone else's property or destroy someone else's property um, just because either they want to or they think they need it or or they're not thinking about it at all it's just a whim so this is this this is this concept and this is this is this reality and like i mentioned at the start of talking about psychopathy a lot of people can't fathom the the depths of the malevolence that's why it's a good um, practice to do a little reading on serial killers because you you'll get a, a very good idea of just just how just how far the depths of that can go so to to the, like the the most horrendous types of like torture and murder that you can imagine and the psychopath the serial killer in this in, in this example enjoying it so you you can add an element of sadism on top of the on top of everything else there are some psychopaths who are actually sadists who enjoy making other people suffer who enjoy toying with and experimenting with people and just seeing what they can do seeing with, with what they can get away with so there's a wider sphere of of what you might call a, a you know, uh, a grouping of, of mental illness of, of a sorts into which we'd class these types of, well, the psychopathy and other personality disorders of people who don't fit in the world, who don't feel like they fit in society, who feel wronged by society, not necessarily because of anything that's actually been done to them, but simply because society isn't set up in the, in the way that they want, they feel wronged by the world for the way the world is set up well, yeah that's uh the like you're saying the psychopaths don't fit in the world because the world is not suited or meant for them mm -hmm. so it, it's very similar in the way that uh when a society is structured one way and just a group of normal human beings don't get what they deserve which is to say like you know they they are oppressed in a real way you know like they're their rights are trampled on or they're not be, being allowed to have jobs or, or what have you, they will naturally revolt mm -hmm. in, in some way, shape or form. And yeah. I, and I, and so that's very similar to what you see with the psychopath, uh, except that it's not really justified right. or, well, I guess to them it's justified because mm -hmm. again, they're not getting their needs met. Uh, the difference is that like their, their needs are antithetical to the survival of the species. Yeah. Yeah. And therein lies the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't really build a society for them because they'll just go around killing, maiming, torturing, raping, pillaging, you know, the whole nine yards of, of everyone. And and there'd be no society left for them to do anything with. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just kind of like, you know, what can you do except to uh, separate or segregate them in some way? And with your, like what you were saying with, um, uh, with, researching or, or reading about serial killers it's uh i mean getting an idea of of just the the sheer malevolence of, of being able to to torture like you were saying and and not have any qualms about it is is a very drastic change of of uh, i don't even know how to describe it other than like it's a it's an inner landscape that's so completely foreign that it's difficult if not really impossible to actually like get into uh that that mindscape mm -hmm. um and then adding on top of it uh which may not be as readily apparent uh 
as if you were looking at something like cult leaders uh, would be the the ability to manipulate uh, in subtle ways and to and their ability to get people to do what it is that they want them to do. Mm-hmm. Again, they're trying to they're trying to get their their me their needs their wants their their whims. Uh, met in some kind of a way, and they don't care how they do it or who they have to, you know, hurt or manipulate uh, to get there. But it's not, it's not um, cut down or, you know, so myopic to only apply to one person or even a couple of people. It can be applied to hundreds or thousands or millions, mm-hmm. depending upon the size of the audience that the person is is mm-hmm. has in front of them. Mm-hmm. Which also kind of depends on like whether they're a successful psychopath or not because if you are successful which is to say that they're able to move within a society undetected because they have this mask and they've they've you know worked on it uh you know assuming they have a really good mask well then they can you know manipulate their way to tops of different hierarchical structures uh, one way or another and then then they have this huge swath of people that are below them that they can use to you know manipulate and and get all of these uh, things that they want and they think that they are owed, uh, but you know the rest of us would disagree. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a couple of things there, and and one is that you know we talked about how difficult it is to really viscerally understand the level of malevolence that exists among uh, psychopaths and, and individuals who are not necessarily. Uh, sadistic or on the level of serial killers, but even just uh, successful psychopaths, snakes in suits, as was mentioned earlier, uh, people who would act out of uh, a Machiavellian narcissistic uh, imperative to to better themselves at the cost of all others, but with these buffers of you know civility and and personality and uh, charisma and um, and the vulnerability that that many individuals have in 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 being biased and in projecting their own human qualities onto people who who don't deserve it. Uh, so, I think one of the the b- larger points, the bigger points here about having a healthy psychological outlook, is to realize that we quite often unconsciously just assume as a matter of course that many people are healthy and normal individuals Mm -hmm. who aren't so willing to screw over someone else to better their position and on the subject of numbers you know we we said as a conservative estimate one percent of the population uh is a is a full-on psychopath let's take a moment and think about what that means because in the United States, what do we have? About two hundred and seventy million individuals. No, more than that. Three. It's over three hundred. Is it over three thirty or something? Three thirty. Like okay, so three thirty. So close you, enough. <laughs> let, let's say it's uh, three hundred million, for instance. That means that one percent of the population. Three million. Is three million psychopaths. Three million. Now you imagine not all of them are intelligent or successful or. Um, or you know, just smart enough to get over on a lot of people. Many of them might be incarcerated. But just imagine that half of them, a million and a half, 
Can you imagine what a million and a half people, a portion of which will go into politics, a portion of which will go into Wall Street, a portion of which will go into the technocracy or law enforcement? Healthcare or uh, psychological health? Yes. Any number of fields. You have tens if not hundreds of thousands of individuals who are willing to say and do anything in order to bolster their own position of power. And you don't need that many to, to wreak havoc on a, on a large scale. So, um, so we've got, so we've introduced some of these ideas. Um, the way this all fits together is that, well, I'll start with this. Is there a reason, I'm going to ask a leading question, is there a reason that when you look at a lot of the protests and riots over the last um, you know, six months, since summer of last year, why a lot of the people who end up being arrested or investigated to any degree, a lot of the leaders of these um, like Antifa cells or, or whatever turn out to be um, convicted felons and pedophiles sex offenders what is it about a protest well i wouldn't even say a protest movement what is it about an ideological movement bent on um revolution and restructuring society that attracts these types of people because well, i was just gonna say that there's two aspects to that there's the particular and then there's the general and so with these in particular, you can see why they're attracted to this particular movement because it, it is founded upon the critical social justice uh, theories, which are psychopathic in nature. You know, it's a completely restructured pseudo-reality that's all based on lies and manipulations. And so they're, they're attracted to this movement in particular because it reflects what they want, mm -hmm. which is a restructuring of society along their lines. Uh, but then, in, and that's in the specific, in the general sense, uh, it provides them cover for being able to do the very things that they want to do the whole time. You know, they want to mm -hmm. go out and burn stuff and smash things and kill people and rape and whatever. Uh, these are the things that they wanted to do all along. Right. And now they have an ability and a reason and, you know, a whole justification, whatever, mm -hmm. to be able to do it and possibly get away with it. Yeah, most likely get away with <laughs> and it. And most likely get away with it. So <laughs> Yeah, so it's the it's the perfect breeding ground for for criminals because they know they can get away with it. And the payoff, the ultimate payoff that might, you know, that they perceive, I think, could be in the in the future for them is power. Mm -hmm. This is why it's the same whenever you look at a revolutionary movement um, you have a lot of examples to look at in the 20th century where it was the same kind of people involved, you know, and when I say that, the same kind of people involved, I don't mean that every revolutionary movement is always composed of all these types of people. There are always individuals of this sort who are within revolutionary movements for these reasons. And look at what happened in the Russian Revolution. Well, who ended up getting power? Who ended up on top? It was the worst of the worst. Same in Mao's China. And and not even not only that, like in in the Russian Revolution, you had a whole bunch of kind of competing 
socialist revolutionary movements and groups and Marxist groups. And it was Lenin and the Bolsheviks who were kind of the most radical of the bunch who ended up on top because they were the most um, conscienceless. They were the most, the most willing to, to, you know, stab and shoot their way to the top. And on top of that, then you have a series of successive purges among the ideological movement. And you find this, the, the, the greatest, the best example I've read recently is uh, in the, in Frank Dickhouter's books on, on Mao's revolution. He's got a trilogy of books and the one I read was on the great famine and throughout, you know, it was even going on for like 20 years, successive purges of the, the weak members of the, of the party of the, of the ideological movement who then would, whose absence then open creates a vacuum for the most cutthroat bloodthirsty elements to rise to the top. So you have this increasing concentration and refinement of the, of the movement to the point where Lobachevsky argues in a, when this process essentially completes itself, you have what, what you might, what you might call a total inversion of society's structure. In a relatively normal society, as we've been discussing, psychopaths tend to end up either in exile or in prison, in some way taken out of the body politic, or marginalized in such a way that that, that they're on the outskirts of society. You know, they're the, the the criminals and the con men. You know, on the on the fringes on the fringes of society, getting by, going from town to town, cities city to city, conning people, and not really not really integrating in the social framework and the social fabric because it's, it's, it's difficult for them. Like they can't keep a job for the most part in a lot of cases, what you have in, in this pathological process is an inversion where all of the, all of the leadership positions and, and positions of authority are then staffed by and held by, um, by psychopaths. Lobachevsky argues, I don't know if, if, if this is necessarily true or not, or if, if this is just an ideal case, but he argues that a hundred percent, I'd say, you know, at least, at least approaching a hundred percent, the vast majority of the psychopaths in any given population will then be part of the ruling structure. So you totally, it's a total, a total reshaping of the fabric of society because the way societies normally function, it's like, it's a, it's this, um, how to describe it, almost this natural process. It's unconscious, un- unconscious for the people involved in it, but we naturally have a way of structuring ourselves. You'll notice this in any, any group, any small group or large group, where people tend to find their place within a group. Some people gravitate to leadership positions who are good leaders, who are, who are fit for the role. And some people are, are happier in a supporting position. Some people are, are, are find some degree of fulfillment just doing a, a, a menial job every day. And you, I, I know people like this. I know there are people like this who just who work the same job every day and aren't going to, to um, launch a revolutionary movement because they feel they, don't, they aren't getting enough out of life. They've got what they want. You know, they've got their job. They, they, they've got their things they do when they get home and, and that they do on the weekends. And they're at least, at least um, relatively satisfied with that with that, um, with their place in life. And that naturally shapes itself to the point where 
uh, and in an ideal case, like the people who are who are really smart do things that utilize their their smartness. The people who are really good with their bodies, um, you know, become athletes and and do great things in in sports and athletics. And you know, people who are great at the arts become uh, are able to support themselves by by doing what they're good at and what they and what they love. And people who are good at business become businessmen and etc. People find their place. And for the most part, the people who make up society aren't psychopaths. And the people who find their place find their place within that social hierarchy and framework. So similarly, there's a restructuring of society along these psychopathic lines where there is this utopic vision uh, in the psychopath's mind of of what they dream of. Mm -hmm. And along the way, well, they have to start off small. They have to start off with, mm-hmm. with something that's reasonable, like a pseudo-reality that maps to reality to you know a great, at least a great degree in order for it to start to take hold. And then as it progressively gets or comes closer to fruition, it gradually has to change uh, in order for the utopic vision to, to come to full fruition. So it has to subtly change. And, uh, and then I guess along certain points, uh, somebody starts to... Uh, question things or can it can only go so far is um, is that kind of the way that it works is that uh, like it it reaches a certain point where you know they can't really take it any farther along these lines and so they have to change it and they need to purge or what's kind of like the mechanism there because it was an interesting aspect of uh, James's article that I hadn't really uh, thought about as to like why the purges um which purges though like the well the I'll, I'll i'll just i'll go off on a bit and let me know if if this is what you mean so th- there are I'm, I'm describing or i was describing this kind of the the way things normally work but um but things go wrong so lobachevsky at least identifies certain certain aspects of a society that kind of weaken it weaken the social structure one of the examples he gives, and this is this is just one. Well, I'll, I'll give two. One, he he says a, a very important thing for any society and their health, and kind of like as a vaccine against this sort of thing taking place, is their general um, psychological knowledge, and just just the way things work. So he'd argue that if you compare different societies, different cultures, you'd be able to rank them. Um, on their psychological knowledge, like just overall for for the indiv- individuals in a different cult in, in in different cultures, so a society who has a, a greater psychological knowledge, and that would mean awareness of of um, different kinds of uh, psychological problems like psychopathy, as well as um, ideas about actual mental health and what's and what's good and what's healthy, as opposed to people who uh, and societies who have maybe a a an overly simplistic view of human nature and who who, who have like oper- uh, structured their society based on this simplified view of human nature, which applies to, um, Lobachevsky would argue, and I'd agree, most social like philosophies, most philosophies applying to, to humanity and, and societies for the last 200 years. You know, there was a lot of, um, probably the majority of famous philosophers have a very... Um, <clears throat> Um, a, a very oversimplistic view of human nature, for instance. But the other thing is 
something as simple as I was describing that social structure, that can be perverted and and inverted in a, in a certain way very easily. And he calls this uh, um, over and uh, over and under adjustment or something like that, above and, well, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase he uses, but basically, if you're an incompetent person and somehow you get put in a position of power and authority above your level, level of competence, this could be through nepotism or, um, or just circumstance or you or you might be a shady individual and you kind of um, have manipulated your way into this position for some reason that creates two types of problems first the, a person who's incompetent in a position and doing things that they're not competent to do um, will tend to act out in certain ways that uh, that aren't healthy for the the organization or the or you know for the rest of the people over over whom they have authority um, Lobachevsky says in his experience that such people tend to tend to adopt a kind of totalitarian overly controlling um, method of leadership because they on some level they know that they're not they can't actually do the job that they're there to do actually reminds me a couple of, uh, reminds me of a couple people in uh, in Erturul, but, <laughs> but uh but then for the people uh, of course, the people working under them will feel a resentment towards that person c- because it's like, well, here's a person who's no smarter than me in this position that's, uh, you know, way above me and he doesn't deserve it. You know, so why so why don't I get that? You know, um, people are very, um, you could say class class conscious or, or um, they're just aware of the social hierarchy. Um, that's just, that's one of those natural things about about humans is that we 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 unconsciously we're constantly um, noticing those kinds of things. Who's above us in the social hierarchy? Who's below us? And then you you can have a person who's very um, intelligent and creative, who is in a position below their station, and that breeds resentment too. So Lobachevsky at least argues that to the degree that that's going on in a society, that um, that is kind of the primary weakness that it can be the primary weakness towards this kind of like, let's say ideological and social and societal infection taking hold when you have um, all of this maladjustment within the social structure so you'll get a whole bunch of resentful people that is that are a perfect breeding ground for revolutionary movements because society is so unequally uh, unfairly structured that we might as well like as, as you were saying we might as well have a revolution to to make things right so but then one thing that Lobachevsky doesn't actually talk about but which I think is something to to keep in mind is that even in a well in a society like that especially in a society that is falling prey to various kinds of societal sicknesses illnesses is that you will you you will always find probably even even in the most healthy societies relative to others you'll find psychopaths who do manage to make it into positions of power um, it's probably just a, a constant no matter what society you live in and so I'd also argue that to the degree that that happens that also weakens a society and makes them more susceptible to a to this kind of macro social revolutionary pathological process so 
you can because if you look at well uh, I'll just leave it at that so you've got these all these things that can create uh, a weakness and kind of start fracturing the 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 ties that make up the network of society the naturally forming network of society that uh, the way I kind of picture it is you know if you picture a kind of like a, a family tree or something to represent a social hierarchy or network it doesn't have to be pyramidal but uh, just all of these nodes um, the way I say it is like various points of of um, like disease like popping up and sometimes they spread sometimes you might have like a society that's that is relatively mostly mostly healthy you know with little little bits here and there and then you might have one portion of it that's just like totally uh, totally diseased you know that's the way I've kind of seen uh, the, the United States is like oh here's the here's the CIA and the intelligence community and then <laughs> you know and everyone okay there's a bunch of corruption here a bunch of psychopathy here but there's like there's a, a one group that's oversaturated right mm -hmm. and then but for the most part people can people can and do deal with this sort of thing like we still put psychopaths in prison when we catch them because they commit crimes um, we've got you know laws on the books in you know pretty much every every society where it's a it's a natural um, sorting mechanism that that takes out the criminal element and you know puts them away somehow and even in a even in a natural setting I'd say it like overall you know I, you know I could be wrong about this but overall people tend to be able to to survive this kind of situation um, it's not like it's not like everything just gets destroyed constantly because of the because of the influence of psych, of psychopaths it's like people are pretty good at at um, surviving and making things better to a degree um, and that seems to have been that's that's kind of the way I see most um, like at least most like Western societies for for recent years is that for all of the things wrong with them they still manage to at least like you know croak by you mm -hmm. know and 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 get by without a total um, you know a total collapse so so I think that's one reason for the necessity of purges to some degree and other phenomena is that there's just so many relatively normal people that it's impossible to it's impossible to naturally um, invert that social structure without a um, some kind of like revolutionary like knocking over of the chessboard basically what what needs to be well what you mean, you mean coming from uh, normal people no uh, no, no or? this would be coming from the from a revolutionary movement like the way to the way to reorder society is only ever to totally reorganize it mm -hmm. so that's why in the 20th century at least the way that pathocracies as lobachevsky calls it the way that um, these kind of social systems have come into being is through a revolutionary movement where they basically wipe out the entire existing elite class replace them with their own members and then enforce a totalitarian um, regime where everything is controlled and and there's there's no independent yeah. um, there are no independent cells of of freedom to any degree it's not like it's not like the uh, uh, totalitarian revolutionary movement and gains control of of power uh, of, of an entire country and then says oh well, we're just gonna leave this area of society alone they can do their own thing right 
That never happens. It's always total control. Yes. I was going to say that if the ultimate goal is to, to develop some kind of centrally controlled pathocracy, where you have a very tight-knit, unquestioning uh, order or new order to society, then it becomes necessary to even target and purge those who may have initially helped things along to start with, who, who have their own ideas and versions of, of what the revolution and utopia might look like in order to, to make the, the power structure as pure yeah. as possible. Now, and we can apply this, we've mostly been applying it to the left and to communism and socialism, but we can also look at the far right in Nazi Germany, where one of the earliest groups of, of Hitler sympathizers were the brown shirts, who themselves, uh, after a while, outlived their use uh, because they were quite thuggish and disorderly. And in order to make this more tight-knit, um, finer order of power and hierarchy with you know, Hitler at the summit, they knocked all these guys off. So, Well, there is, uh, to really, well, the, the actual question that I was kind of thinking about uh, in my mind was specifically like along those lines, like once the pathocracy has already started, like why do they continue to purge themselves, <clears throat> which got me thinking about something you had said uh, about Mao's revolution, uh, where they had their quotas that they had to meet, mm -hmm. and they, they, can't, they couldn't meet it, and so they had to lie. And then some of the people were like, actually, this isn't, you know, this isn't entirely accurate. And so instead of being like, ah, okay, let's fix that, they said, ah, okay, you're dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's kind of, I think, where part of it at least comes from is the fact that eventually uh you know no matter how far along uh the the pathocratic movement is um some normal people will adopt some but not all others will adopt more but not all mm -hmm. and so it just kind of reaches a point where somebody says like actually this doesn't map to reality here and so that's kind of why they have yeah. to get purged is because they're 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 willing to point out that it doesn't map to reality right. at whatever admit, point admit it yeah and yep. they're willing to admit it yeah well even not not even necessarily um uh, intentionally yeah it's like yeah. if they if they even if 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 through their actions for some reason or another the the falseness of the of the pseudo reality is exposed yeah then they must be destroyed yes. for 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 having it revealed they could have completely uh, altruistic purposes, wanting the, the, the revolution to succeed, yeah, yeah. but simply because they point out a simple fact that, you know, exposes a wider narrative, they get exposed and, you know, done away with. And that actually reminded me of something else, and I can't remember who it was, but there was a uh, a corporation where there was a new CEO put in, and, you know, things were not looking good for the company, and they were doing bad. Um but nobody was telling the top brass about it because they were afraid. And so, you know, they bring in this new CEO and everybody's really like anxious and they're like, I don't know how this is going to go because it can go one of two ways. Like somebody can ask you like, what's going on? How's your department? And it can be like Mao's China where it's like, it's just a bunch of yes men mm -hmm. yeah. and you lie. We're over target. We're, we're over target. Uh, or you can have it like, you know, this corporation did where, you know, 
what's the situation? And they're like, actually, we are down, you know, 5%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the, that was the crucial moment because it could be, you know, if you have a psychopathic person trying to push this pathocratic system and the pseudo-reality, you know, that exposes the pseudo-reality. You can either get punished or you can get, you know, um, supported from it. And in that particular instance, they were like, good, thank you. Someone's actually telling me the truth for once. So we can actually, like, build something that, that is actually functional. Yeah. I think you're talking about uh, how Ford Motor Company might have had was its it yeah, big turnaround it was, about it 20 years ago. Seven uh, Habits of Highly Affected People. I think that yeah. was one of the examples you gave in the book. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, I thought it might have been from the book Insight. But the whole point was that this oh, guy was willing... Yeah. To, uh, to, to listen to even people outside the company and, and on the lower echelons mm-hmm. who were willing to, to say what the people he was immediately surrounded by were not willing to say, yeah. which was, this is what you have to do to make things better. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it would be great. Harrison, I know you wanted to delve a little bit into the actual article. There are some gems in there, um, especially defining uh, what pseudo-reality actually is and the uh the ideological uh paralogic um do you want to go into that sure yeah. i just i wanted to just make one comment that the about the mouth thing that you were talking about and the reason for these purges one one comment um there's no honor among thieves first of all and so that even if you are well first even if you are a, a diehard true believer in the the revolution that doesn't mean that your head might be the next one on the chopping block if you're uh, a pathological exploiting exploiting the movement like all the other pathologicals that still doesn't mean that you're in the free and clear if you just manage to screw up then you'll just you'll be just as heartlessly thrown out with the trash as anyone else just by virtue of circumstance so there's there's absolutely no uh level of well like psychopaths don't have any type of like interpersonal bond with each other. So it's not like, oh, you know, he kind of screwed up, but he's such a great guy and he's my friend. It's like, no, okay, you know, less competition for me. So it is a totally ruthless and heartless environment. You can't apply normal human, um, like, interactions and uh, the the motivations for normal human interactions to a group of people like this. Um, Yeah, and and the, the, the reason it... The reason that these types of failures happen, and, and well, one reason that these these types of purges happen once a a movement like this is in control, in addition to there being people who aren't not aren't a hundred percent on board or a hundred percent in the know, is that this is one of the points that Lindsay argues in the article is that something like to the degree that to uh, the further away your ideology is from reality the more it it conflicts with reality, the more it is going to fail. So in the case of of Mao's China and like the the Great Leap Forward and the the resulting famine, the famine happened because they were so divorced from objective reality that everything fell apart. And it was a, just like in the Soviet Union, it was an entire culture founded upon lies. Mm And everything had everything was lying. You had to lie about everything. So when you have everybody lying about everything, nothing's going to work. And so when nothing works, then someone has to take the blame. And then that opens the that opens, like I said, it creates a vacuum for even worse people to come in and just compounds the problem. So, well, it just 
taking it to the types of developments that we're seeing in the West and in particular in the U.S., uh, as a as a child of the 70s and 80s, and I'm, I'm sure I've said this before here, um, to wake up one day a couple of years ago and realize that uh, reality has been inverted yet again. First, it was in the 2000s under Bush in a neoconservative version of reality. Uh, and then it's it's swung in this other sick direction towards uh, far left uh, communist socialist thinking with with what we're seeing now and to realize and to see how pervasive uh, this is in in the US to see how it's taken over the discourse the language uh, the thoughts and ideas and what people are saying and doing to the extent that it has it's it I I can't stress this enough. It's it's mind-boggling. Uh, so to read an article uh, such as Lindsay's that describes in some detail how this process takes place and and what the levels of intelligence are and how uh, these uh, paralogical ideas get foisted upon individuals and how individuals who may be very intelligent, as he says, how they. Very smart people. Very smart people is, is how he calls it. Uh, how they uh, assimilate and respond to and, and go along with to the extent that they do. All of these, uh, you know, in, in, in real, truthful, logical terms, these illogical ideas is fascinating and, and a, new kind of, um, a new kind of way for us to immunize ourselves from the mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the types of things that we're seeing on a daily basis. Um, so this is from a, a section of this uh, really long but worth reading essay called Ideological Paralogic. And Lindsay says, because the pseudo-reality is not real and does not correspond in any faithful way to objective reality, it cannot be described in terms that are logical. In the realm of how it thinks about the world, a pseudo-reality will employ an alternative logic, a paralogic, an illogical fake logic that operates beside logic, that has internally comprehensible rules and structure, but that does not produce logical results. Indeed, it, is necessar it necessarily must correspond not to reality, but to pseudo-reality, and it must also, therefore, violate the law of non-contradiction. That is, a pseudo-real paralogic will always be internally, and often unrepentedly, inconsistent and self-contradictory. You know, just like <laughs> anti-fascists, but they're fascists. Um, you know, inclusiveness, but don't include conservatives, you know, as, as but one obvious, exa obvious example. Uh, this can be taken as a symptom that a paralogic is being presented in support of a pseudo-reality, as can be any sustained attack on principles of objectivity and reason. And, and, and one of the ways that we're seeing this sustained attack on principles of objectivity and reason is to shut everybody up across the board. If you have an opinion that's opposed to this uh, larger, you know, critical theory uh, discourse, uh, then you must be racist. You must be evil. You must be pro-Hitler. 
You, That's exactly you why they're xenophobic. against uh, free speech. They hate free speech because they can't control what people say and they can't control the fact that they don't control reality. But if they control the narrative, they think they can control reality. And so that's why they hate free speech. And and this is where this is where this this movement that we're seeing uh, is so um, ruthless, because what it says is that if you're not if you're not going along with this way of thinking, this pseudo reality, this this paralogical way of thinking, then you are evil. Because how can you not be against racism? How can you not be against uh, xenophobia or or um, or a- any so, one of these phobias? It's so like masterful. I hate to say, yeah, it's but devious. it's so devious yes. that they take these these things that that are ostensibly like you know true in the sense that like racism is wrong in the sense that it doesn't really map to reality and you know causes all kinds of harm and xenophobia like we can all agree that these aren't good things and but that's where they get you in the trap Mm -hmm. because then you once you acknowledge this little portion of their pseudo reality as being true then they can start using their uh para para paramoralistic word games Mm -hmm. to just smash you to pieces Mm -hmm. it's Devious and sick. <laughs> yeah. And because people are afraid to, uh, to question the, this, this sort of thing, there's a tendency to go along with the, the crowd, to submit, to not be subject to uh, the, the attacks. So it's, um, it's, 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 a, it's an absolutist, totalitarian approach to psychology towards rebuilding society towards uh really destroying the the mental health of a good part of the population who doesn't realize what what they're undergoing what this uh this polarization is doing to their minds to their uh to their responses to things and uh it it really takes a certain amount of looking back and a an objective reality and weighing of the messages that are being um, inflicted upon people. Uh, I mean, you know, that image of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and and the rest of them, you know, kneeling and wearing the, uh, the culturally, uh, culturally appropriate appropriate (laughs) African garb. I mean, you know, this couldn't be more insincere. Um, But they realize that this is, you know, this is the ideology of the moment that is going to help secure their own positions of power. When at the end of the day, all of their policies, however they're branded, however they're whatever they're called, uh, are are destructive to their own constituency. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of of how heartless and yeah, just how how devious and malevolent it is. I read. I can't remember what I was reading recently. I think it was an article in The Federalist on uh, just what's going on in American society at the moment and and how every every kind of revolutionary and authoritarian, every authoritarian 
thinks that they're doing the right thing. They don't see themselves as authoritarians. And you'll see this on Twitter currently, at the, you know, at the present moment. Um, all of the people who are who are cheering like the the banning of Donald Trump from all these social networks, um, not seeing the the wider implications of it, they're just happy that it happened, and can't see basically that they're the that they are the authoritarians. Just like a lot of anti-fascists can't see that they are the fascists. Um, in their mind, they are righteous and just people doing the right thing against and uh, against evil people who deserve it. And so there's that element where you can have, again, there are examples going around, you can have um, children of parents, uh, you can have chil children and, um, and you know, young adults turning in their, their parents to the FBI or their uncles or aunts because they know that they attended the, the rally you know, on Capitol Hill on the 6th. Whether or not they were involved in any kind of violence or whatever, they're like, oh, you know, I know my uncle was there. I called the FBI and I turned him in, you know, mm -hmm. giving the names of their parents or whatever. And these people think that, or a lot of these people, I'll say, think that they are actually battling evil, fighting evil by doing this. Now, as evil as that is, to a degree, because that's what always happens, you know, every time this happens in human history, you're going to get people like that. What a lot of people don't realize is that there is a significant portion of those kind of people who are who are they're psychopaths they're doing this for psychopathic reasons it's like i'm gonna destroy this person's life it's like i don't care whether they were at the rally or not i'm just gonna destroy them and that's what you see a lot on twitter a lot of it is is hidden it's um it's not on the surface you can't tell just by reading a tweet but social media the internet has always been a a, a perfect breeding ground a perfect playground for psychopaths and pedophiles because of the anonymity. They can create tens, hundreds of accounts, however many they need. They can go into anonymous chat rooms. They can uh, you know, groom children. They can do whatever they want. And you won't be able to tell. There are a lot, so I'd, I'd argue that, that a lot of what's going on, a lot of these people that are doing it, doing these sorts of things on social media, for instance, a lot of the, a lot of the cancel culture and a lot of the, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the snitching and the, the, the Stasi and Gestapo type activities that are going on is just totally manipulative, malevolent people who are just out there to ruin people's lives. It's like when they, when they see something, when they're you know, going through someone's Twitter profile and find something eight years ago, ten years ago, it's like, ah, you know, I, I've got this, you know, I got this guy. I'm going to ruin him. Isn't that something? I'm going to destroy this person. Mm -hmm. And they get a, a, a kick out of it. You know, it's fun. There are people like that. There are people who are out that are out there who just want to destroy your life completely to whatever degree possible that they can. That's the depth of, well, that's not even the depth. That's one of the depths. For no other reason other than the fact that mm -hmm. they just don't like you. Right. Yeah. That's all it takes. They don't like you for any reason at all. Mm -hmm. You looked at them in a mean way. You criticized them for doing something that was, you know, rightfully criticized even. Uh, it, well, there's another dimension to this, and that is that uh, the critical race theory um, and to some degree Black Lives Matter and to some degree Antifa and Black Bloc groups uh, are all seeking to accrue power to themselves in a way that that would include sometimes attacking. It, it's not, it, it's a tearing down of something in order to feel empowered and it's not an authentic 
uh, integration or, or a constructive, you know, individuation or realization of one's abilities and, and, you know, earning their way through a, um, a job and a relationship and a family. It's, it's seeking to tear down in order to build themselves up. And that's the utopian, that's part of the utopian philosophy. So it happens on this macro level, and then we see it on this uh, larger level, which manifests itself in, in the burning of cities, in the attacking of civic institutions, in the, uh, in the propping up of, of leaders who pay um, credence to their philosophy, or at least tacitly permit them to do what they're going to do. Um, but... I think we'd also do well to realize that so much of these movements are have become institutionalized. The types of thinking that we're seeing reflected uh, in in far left liberal culture these days is being literally taught in universities across the board, and these organizations that are that are protesting and at worst, you know, ca- causing civil civil discord are highly organized in many cases and financed and and brainchild and thought out by people that they don't even realize are are pulling the strings all for you know larger kinds of policies and and movements that uh that are beyond the scope beyond the vision of the the individual protesters uh, imagination yeah it's thinking specifically about the the riots in these major cities and then they go around and you know someone tells them hey go burn down that building and you know they're all they're getting paid for some of this stuff and you know they go and they burn down the building they're like you know all right cool i get to burn down a building and i get paid for it sweet i'm all for it uh unbeknownst to them they're actually clearing the real estate for the you know whoever it is to come in and buy it all for pennies on the dollar later. Like you're saying, this is these are all like games within games. And the the people on the bottom level who are just, you know, either opportunistic or, you know, blind believers are getting used and played in ways they cannot fathom uh, to their detriment and our own. Everyone's getting played. Like even the people, well, let's say, Let's say you've got a corporation, right? Okay, because first of all, woke ideology has infected universities, um, education on all levels, you know, from kindergarten up, big tech, woke finance, mm-hmm. um, every corporate, every corporation on the planet. Well, every corporation in, not on the planet, but uh, you know, in in our uh, in our all Western the mega world, corporations. yeah, all the mega corporations. Well, not even mega corporations. Every like every at least like semi-large corporation has um, has these like, what are they called? Like diversity, equity, and inclusion boards. And mm-hmm. and it's so every aspect of, pretty much every aspect of society and and that, that covers a chunk of them, the entire, you know, being the, the majority, the, the most important people in the internet, in finance, in business, and largely in politics, it's everywhere. Um, but let's say you've got a you've got a corporation, some big corporation, some mega corporation that is kowtowing to the you know to the mob, 
and doing these photo ops and doing everything right, you know, or think about uh, a similar example, um, a a uh, like a Joe Biden supporter on the street of where one of these riots is is taking place, um, with his Joe Biden sign at the front. You know, they're somehow destroying his property, and he's on his on his porch. I'm thinking of a real video yeah. saying, "You guys, you know, I support you. I, I'm I'm Joe Biden. Look like, at my I, sign. Yeah, look at my sign." It's like that doesn't that doesn't matter. All of these all the all of these like cowards and uh, and lackeys at, at the top of these corporations who are who are just uh, you know selling themselves for. Uh, to, to, to virtue signal and, and and be part of the crowd, they're not safe. Like no one's no one's safe. Um, the the people on the bottom are being used. The people on the top are being used. Um, and like in Mao's China, any one of them could be next. That's and that, I think that's one important point that a lot of the people supporting this don't realize is that you could be next. You you probably will be. Yeah, as many billboards and signs and commercials and everything else that like Nike and Apple have done to be inclusive and to virtue signal, guess what? New York City, Chicago, wherever it was, they still broke into the stores right. and stole all your stuff, you dumbasses. That's right. <laughs> and how, how sincere can a, a rioter be who's who's fighting for all of these things if they're destroying a a, a a minority-owned business in their own neighborhood or someone else's neighborhood. How do you, you know, how do you reconcile? And that's that's what Lindsay's talking about. You know, these contradictions uh, that that you know these these illogical um, motivations. How do you not question? Because you're told to shut off your conscience in in the you know in the pursuit of this great cause. So. What's right in front of you to realize is not there. It's you've been told to shut it out, or ignore it, or to opt for the pseudo reality, and and there lies, you know, the the problem, um, because you know what, what we're seeing. This larger movement is it's pretty darn big. Uh, it's 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 not just. You know the 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 signs you know touting in, inclusivity in in companies that you might work for. Uh, it is the the bolstering of people into positions of power that will basically they're just using the ideology like like we've said on many shows previously. It's not that the uh, it's not that the ideology needs the the, the psychopath the it, the psychopath needs. The ideology—that's their vehicle. That is their um, their their road to to power. So, and that was something that we had discussed one day, talking about like a new version of or an updated version of uh, panorology. Was was that was that quote in particular? And what struck me about it trying to figure out like you know why it why that was and you know what was it about it that really made things work well now we can understand that the reason why the spellbinders need the ideology is because the only way that they can invert people's natural conscience and moral structures to the extent that they become on top and what is immoral is seen as moral and good and that's the only way and that's why they need it so if we don't buy into it if we don't feed into it there's nothing that they can do, and they will always see, be seen for what they really are. 
And that's why the solution, one solution is to um, ruthlessly mock yes. you know, everything that's going on. And that's why, the, the, I, well, maybe we'll close this. Uh, I recommended the article. I also recommend you check out James Lindsay's Twitter feed because uh, he's gloriously sarcastic and, uh, and funny and effective at pointing these things out. Um, so it's a, a daily... A daily string of insights from James, <laughs> James, James Lindsay on Twitter about how this kind of thing works. And uh, if you want to see a person who is, uh, uh, how to put it, not shy about telling idiots that they're totally idiotic and just pointing out the total um, paralogic and paramorality of everything that's going on, give him a chance and check him out. And maybe with that said, we're going to, and the show for today, we'll be revisiting these topics, you know, pr probably pretty regularly throughout this year because it's probably the most important, um, one of the most important things that we can talk about this year um, mm -hmm. because sure. of everything that's going on. So with that said, yeah. check out the article. We'll put some links in the show description and uh, we'll see you next week.